and today we'll be reading from Joshua 7. It's on the front page of your handout. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and don't worry the whole army, for only a few few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were rooted by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring us across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been rooted by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they'll surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with Israel, took Achan son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had, to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped, heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Thanks, Bianca. If you want to keep that open in front of you, um, 
Pro tip, we're actually in chapters 5 to 8 today, so if you have a Bible on you, it's a good idea to pull that one out or get ready to be looking, because we'll be dipping in and out at various points. Uh, let's bring you up to speed. Uh, this semester we've been working through the book of Joshua, uh, and it's the book in the Old Testament that details Israel's movement from wandering in the wilderness into the promised land of God, and it has been a long time coming. Uh, They have been waiting for 400 years because 400 years ago in Genesis chapter 15, God promised to Abraham that he would give the land of Canaan to his descendants. And now the day has finally come where that promise is taking reality. Last week in chapters three to four, we saw Israel cross the Jordan River in a miraculous fashion. And now today in chapters five to eight, we see Israel begin to take possession of the land. But there's a problem. Israel isn't moving into an empty house. It's already occupied. And the current tenants have been there for a very long time and they have no intention of moving them or their Xbox out. And so to take possession of the promised land, Israel has to take it by force. And God has been very clear on what this involves. Have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Second verse there up on the screen, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. And when God says anything, he means anything. I'm quoting from our passage now. This is Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. Uh, They devoted it, that is to say Jericho, to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, all the way down to the cattle, the sheep and the donkeys. Every living thing from the nursery to the nursing home to the donkey at the back, completely wiped out. And if that doesn't disturb you, I think you have a problem. Because it is disturbing, isn't it? And it's because of these things that we find in the scriptures, particularly in today's passage in the book of Joshua, that many, many people have declared that if that is the God of the Bible, they want to have nothing to do with him. They have a problem with God. Now, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, has this problem, and he has described the conquest of Joshua like this. Ethnic cleansing. A text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. The Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and Marsh Arabs. That's from the God delusion a little bit early on. He really kind of gives us his conclusion up front. He says this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, 
a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, whether or not you're as OTT as Dawkins is, the conquest passages in Joshua, I think, pose a real problem for us. Do we as Christians worship a racist? Do we worship a God who is just? Or do we worship a God that is genocidal? That is the problem. What's the solution? Well, if you've got your Bibles, have, a, uh, have them open uh, and let's head over to chapter 5. Because the section that we're dealing with is so big today, what we're going to do is we're going to map out the basic series of events uh, before we can start to drop in at key points and try and make sense of what this passage is saying. And this is just, by the way, a really good object lesson in bringing your Bible, physical Bible, along to public meeting because the outline today isn't going to help you all that much. Uh, nor is your phone Bible. You simply are not going to be able to see everything that you need to see or refer back to things to put the pieces together. So if you've got your Bibles, great. If you don't, sneak along to the person next to you and and look on with them. Otherwise, you're just going to have to listen and remember um, like they did back in the day before the printing press. So if you've got your Bibles, great. Let's do it. Chapter 5. Israel is now on the other side of the River Jordan. Uh, And you'll see there in the early verses that they set up camp at a place called Gilgal. And it's there that three significant things happen. They get circumcised. They celebrate the Passover. And they start eating from the fruit of the land. The manna that God has been raining down from heaven in the wilderness to feed them has stopped. Uh, They don't need it anymore because they've moved into the house and they know where they can get food. The issue, of course, as I mentioned before, is that they're still in the entry foyer. And so they need to kind of systematically work through the house and oust out the previous tenants from all the other rooms. And so what we see here is at the very beginning of verses 1 to 12, Israel entering the promised land. Now, once we get to chapter 5, verse 13, we see God appearing to Joshua as the commander of the army of the Lord. And he gives him instructions as to how Israel is going to defeat Jericho. Uh, who have in chapter 6, verse 1, shut themselves up in their impenetrable fortress. Uh, And you're kind of thinking God will be like, here's some siege engines, here's a a rocket or whatever. But he actually gives them a really, really strange plan. He tells the armed men to march around the city once a day for six days. The Ark of the Covenant goes with them, the priests go with them, they blow their horns, but nobody is allowed to speak. It's the most quiet army march you can imagine And then on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times. And then at a certain point, Joshua tells them to shout, at which point they do. And one of the walls in Jericho collapses and they rush in and they devote the city to destruction. Now, one of the only exception to all of this is Rahab and her family, who we met back in chapter two. And she receives mercy from God and is spared the destruction because she hid the spies that turned up a couple of days earlier. So at this point, we're at chapter 7, which is pretty full on. Uh, We're getting there slowly, bit by bit, so let's breathe. Uh, Israel continues to move westward to destroy the city of Ai. So we've taken out Jericho, now we're heading off to Ai. Uh, Here's a map to kind of give you an idea of what's happening, uh, even though we're still not entirely sure where Ai is, but they're slowly moving into the promised land. Um, We saw uh, from the reading that Joshua sends some scouts. It's a small city, so they say, we'll only send a portion of our army up. Uh, They expect victory like they did at massive Jericho, and they get absolutely hammered. Uh, And it turns out 
that what has happened is that an Israelite called Achan has taken for himself some of the plunder of Jericho that God has told them that was to be exclusively devoted to the Lord. And so God will no longer fight for Israel uh, until the perpetrator is rooted out and punished. And so they find him and they put him to death. As a result, we're in chapter 8 now, we're almost there, God assures Joshua that they will now defeat Ai. And he gives him a strategy, they set up an ambush, they trick the inhabitants of Ai and lure them out of the city, at which point the ambush is sprung, they come in and they take the city and they crush all the fighting men of Ai in between two large forces and they take the city and like Jericho, they wipe out absolutely everything. They take the body of the king of Ai and Joshua hangs him up on a tree as a declaration that he, as like the rest of the city, is under the judgment of God. Finally, almost there, at the very end of this section of Joshua, which forms one kind of unit, we see a massive scene change. So we're kind of thinking whiplash here, okay? We go from the smoking ruins of Ai all the way north to a place called Shechem, And all of a sudden, Israel are there and they're participating in a covenant ceremony. Uh, It's a ceremony that God, uh, that Moses commanded them to do when God brought them into the promised land. And you can read about it in Deuteronomy 11, 29 or 27, 11. Uh, And even though most of the land remains unconquered, what this is at the very end of this section is a declaration that God has done what he said he would do. He would bring them into the promised land and fulfill his promise. Now, that's a lot of information overload and a bit of a dump, but we need to kind of understand the basic structure of the story if we're going to make sense of what's going on here uh, when we see the destruction of Jericho and I. So, some observations. First of all, I want you to notice the bookends of this section. How does it begin and how does it end? Uh, Because this is going to frame the way that we understand the whole of the section. Israel here is engaged in covenant ceremonies. Ceremonies that declare God's faithfulness to his promise to bring them into the land. When they're circumcised, God tells them that he has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. They've been rescued from their enemies. They celebrate the Passover. They remember God's rescue from Egypt. And then the day after, they start eating the fruit of the land. Now, if you go to the other end of the, the, the story, back in chapter 8, you'll see that they're on Mount Ebal. And something you might have noticed from the map... Um, both um, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, where they were kind of, uh, kind of sitting around and, and doing the ceremony around, is at a place called Shechem. And this is the place where God first promised to Abraham that he would give him the land. And so once you frame this entire section, you're in a position to understand what this section is about. And it is about God's faithfulness to his people and his promises, not about his alleged bloodthirstiness. I think that's a significant thing to take into our understanding of this as we read. Second, I want you to notice the emphasis. Um, Might have given away the the solution there, but I want you to, with the person next to you, particularly if you've got your Bibles, even if you've got your phone Bibles, to skim through chapter 5 and chapter 6 for me. Chapter 5, verse 13, all the way through to the end of chapter 6. And I want you to notice where the emphasis of the passage is. Don't take long, just take it in, just absorb it, skim through, scroll down. The massacre is there, verse 21, verse 24, it's mentioned in verse 17, but it's stated succinctly and matter-of-factly. doesn't glory in the destruction, the emphasis is actually elsewhere. Uh, does anyone want to take a guess as to what the emphasis of chapter 6 is? 
yeah, the marching, specifically the, the plan that God gives Joshua. Gives it to him in verses 2 to 5, and then from verses 6, virtually all the way down to the end of the chapter, it's this very meticulous and detailed description of how Israel conquers Jericho. Uh, the execution meticulously described, the emphasis here is actually on God's agency, God's plan, God's directions in Israel's conquest. And if you were to flick over to chapter 8, you'd see this as well. You would see that God is the one that tells Joshua to do the ambush. And God is the one who tells Joshua when to spring that ambush. And so all of this to say, though, that we still have to deal with the fact of the conquest, but the account is hardly what Dawkins calls a text remarkable for its bloodthirsty massacres or the xenophobic relish with which it does so. And we know this to be true, I think, because of Rahab the prostitute. If you've still got chapter 6 there, um, have a look. Uh, And I want you to realise something about her and her salvation out of Jericho. Because every time God's command to completely destroy is mentioned, so is Rahab. Verse 17, verse 23, verse 25... She and her whole family, who are Canaanites, technically speaking Amorites, uh, are spared because she turned to the Lord. And what this tells us is that whatever is going on in the city of Jericho, it is not racial in nature. Otherwise, God would not have allowed her to come and live with his people. So what's going on? Well, the third thing I want you to notice is the complication in chapter 7. This is where everything goes wrong. And this is why you have it in your outlines and why we read it before. Israel has miraculously crossed the Jordan. They've had complete victory at Jericho. And this is where the wheels fall off. And it is all because Israel sins. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 18. I put this one up on the screen. I thought I'd be nice to you now. God gives this command through Joshua. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. But then what we find out in chapter 7, verse 1, is that an Israelite called Achan has disobeyed this command. He's taken some of the plunder, a robe, some gold, some silver for himself. He hides it under his tent. And so we see there in chapter 7, verse 1, that the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And they were unable to continue the conquest until that sin is rooted out and the perpetrator is removed. So what this tells us is that God's conquest is not against race. It's against sin. The thing that determines the fate of Rahab, the fate of Achan, is not ethnicity. It's how they respond to the commands of God. And this gives us a way, I think, into the real problem of the conquest of Canaan. And it's not our problem with God. It's God's problem with us. He has a problem with our sin. So let's have a look at God's problem with us. Let's have a look first at Canaan's sin. We have to go outside of our passage today to Deuteronomy chapter 9 to get a read on this. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 9, God explicitly states why he is doing what he is doing in the land of Canaan. Uh, Have a look up there on the screen. It says this. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. 
Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see, the thing to get about the conquest is that it is not divinely sanctioned ethnic cleansing. It is divinely sanctioned judgment. You see, the Canaanite nations were wicked and as such deserved God's just condemnation. Their entire culture, their practices, all of it, it was, according to Deuteronomy chapter 18, an abomination to the Lord. And just so we're clear on what we're talking about here, we're talking about people who would regularly and systematically take their own children and burn them on altars to their gods because they thought that pleased their gods. These aren't your garden variety pagans. These people are evil. And even by the standards of our godless Western 21st century society, nobody would have a problem putting that label on them. Richard Dawkins uses all of the right words, but he attaches them to the wrong being. Because God is not those things. It's the Canaanites. And so as a result of their iniquity, because they are evil, God devotes them to destruction. That's Canaanites' sin. What about Israel? Because we're in dangerous territory here, aren't we? Because kind of if we leave it there, it kind of feels like we're setting a precedent for holy war. Uh, God declares that certain behaviours are an abomination and so I am now suddenly justified to bring God's judgement on the heathen or the pagan or the infidel because they're not living the way that God would have them live. And the sad reality is that passages like these have been used to justify massacres throughout human history. Uh, Medieval crusades are perhaps one of the most shameful moments in Christian history. So what do we do with all of this? Well, I think it's actually really important that we're clear on the justification that Israel is given when they enter the promised land and take it by force and devote it to destruction. It is not their moral superiority. Have another look there at Deuteronomy uh, chapter 9. What do you notice uh, at the beginning of of verse 4, beginning of verse 5? God says it twice. In fact, this is the reason the passage is actually given to them in the first place. He says, Do not say in your hearts after the Lord has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess the land. Verse 5, not because of your righteousness, not because of the uprightness of your heart. Israel, you have no moral high ground. And in fact, if you keep reading Deuteronomy 9, you'll see God call them stubborn and you'll see God call them rebellious. And so Israel is sinful too. And we see this, I think, in our passage Uh, Flick your eyes back to chapter 7 there in your Bibles or in your outlines. After Israel's defeat, Joshua tears his clothes and he says to God, you said we'd win. And look at how God replies to him, chapter 7, verse 10. Stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So God says, I'm bringing judgment on Jericho. Don't spare a thing. And Israel doesn't listen. 
And so as a result, the Lord removes the blessing of his presence from them. And what we get is almost like a reverse of polarity in the conquest. All of a sudden, Israel is now getting defeated. And then eventually, Achan and his entire family is being devoted to destruction. And it's curious there that it even mentions his donkeys, right? So the whole thing flips. Uh, There is no kind of ethnic privilege here. What matters is sin. God's problem with us is not our race, it's our sin. And everybody is guilty. The Apostle Paul says famously in Romans 3 that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So Israel, like Canaan, is sinful too. Now, of course, this raises a question for us, and I think it's a good question. Why the heck is Israel getting the promised land then? You know, if they might not be as bad as the Amorites burning their babies, but they're sinful. They clearly deserve God's judgment. We see that with Achan. Why are they getting the land? Uh, and the answer, again, is in Deuteronomy chapter 9, right there at the end of verse 5. God's reasoning, Canaanites, Amorites, all those guys are wicked, and that I may confirm the word of the Lord that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God is giving them the land because he promised to give them the land. And it just so happens that in the way that he has structured history, in fulfilling that promise, he is using Israel as his instrument of judgment. Now, does that make God hypocritical? Punishing one group of sinners with another? Well, no, and for two reasons. Uh, The first is that Israel continues to sin even when they're in the land and God eventually throws them out. He doesn't just let them get away with it. Uh, eventually and sadly, they end up doing the exact same things that these guys did. They only got worse and worse and more and more sinful, and God did not put up with that. Uh, but, but second and more importantly, he's not hypocritical because he doesn't ignore their sin. He actually takes active steps to remove it. Uh, and this is where I think we start to see the gospel of Jesus. Because God has a problem with us. It's our sin. But he doesn't just leave us there. He has a solution for us as well. Uh, this one you can do very easily. Have another look at chapter 7. Look at the thing there on your outline and skim down and have a look at where its emphasis is. Where's the majority of the time and the words devoted to? What, what is it talking about? You've got some interesting stuff at the beginning. Achan sins, Israel's defeated, Joshua complains. But the bulk of the chapter is devoted to a God-ordained systematic process of elimination to root out the devoted things hidden among Israel. And that process is about judgment, but it's also about salvation. Have a look there in verse 13. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. You see, God is intent on purging the sin from Israel so that they can enjoy God's blessing in the land. And this is one of the key patterns you'll see throughout the Bible. You can't have salvation without judgment. Sin has been committed. It must be punished. But the only way to save people from it is to see that sin punished. So what does God do? Well, in the case of our chapter today, verse 14, have a look there. Uh, What does God say? In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. And the clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. 
And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. So by the way, they aren't just kind of doing their own independent Scotland Yard investigation here. God is choosing this. He is narrowing things down. Whoever, this is verse 15, whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Now, as readers, we've already been told who it is, right? If you look at verse 1, we're already told Achan and his tribe and his clan and his family. And so as we're reading this, we know what's coming. And sure enough, Achan is found out, which, by the way, is just a handy little tip to remember that God sees. He will always see sin. You cannot hide it from him. And he picks out Achan and he and all that belongs to him are destroyed. Have a look at verse 25, how it all ends. Joshua said to Achan, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. And here's the key phrase. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. You skip down to chapter 8, verse 1. We actually see God reaffirm his promise to Joshua. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack I, for I have delivered it into your hands. And so the thing to get in all of this is that God is actively involved in removing the problem of our sin. What we have done is offensive in the eyes of the Lord. We have disobeyed him, the God of heaven and earth. And God's fierce anger burns against us. But instead of devote us to complete destruction like he does the Canaanites, like he does Achan, they're the object lesson here. For the sake of his people, he is working things in such a way that his fiery anger is poured out on sin. And yet somehow the sinner remains, not buried under a pile of rocks, but enabled and around to enjoy the blessing of the relationship that we have with the Lord in his land, now unaffected by sin. And the way that God does this is through Jesus. You actually get a hint of this in chapter 8, verse 29. Chapter 8, verse 29. The king of Ai is killed and Joshua hangs him on a tree. And the reason that that is significant is because of Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 23. Deuteronomy 20, 23. We learn that whoever is hung on a cross or hung on a tree is a a declaration that you are under the curse of God. And who was hung on a tree? Jesus. The difference was that while the king of Ai was paying for his own sins on his tree, Jesus, the innocent, was paying for our sins on his. Listen to what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So no racism here. Gentiles is basically everybody who isn't a Jew. So this is everybody in the world. That the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And so the very thing that God has promised to Abraham, he is bringing about in the promised land in the lives of the Israelites... And that very thing that he's doing to them in the promised land, he is working in Jesus Christ for all nations and all peoples throughout the world. God is not a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak like Dawkins says that he is. 
He is actually just, but merciful, patient, forgiving, offering himself to destruction so that we wouldn't be destroyed ourselves. He will still hold sin to account, but there is more to the picture. And we see there, uh, once we see that complex picture, something of the goodness of the gospel, which Dawkins doesn't seem to be able to see. So let's try and land this plane on the right one right runway. Because I want to be clear here. Nothing I have said so far should make you any less disturbed with what you read in Joshua about the conquest of Canaan. It's disturbing. And if it doesn't disturb you, then maybe you need to rethink your reaction to things. The reason it's disturbing is because God intends it to be disturbing. But not because it calls into question his character but because it calls into question our own. God is holy, and we are not. And what is revealed in the conquest narrative is the seriousness with which God sets himself against our sin. We are meant to be disturbed. But what you do with that disturbance will tell you whether you've understood this passage or not. Because you've really got two options. You can either chuck a Dawkins and you can block your ears, you can point the finger back at God and cry foul, And in a really tragic twist of irony, you're confirming the very thing that God is telling us, that we are God-haters who don't listen to him. So you can do that. Or you can humbly accept God's pronouncement and see it for the warning that it is. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, and we are, all of us, sinful. But the verse doesn't end there. It continues, says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the generous, unpetty, forgiving God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why the inclusion of Canaanite Rahab and God's promises to a sinful Israel are of such great comfort to us in the midst of such terrible history. Because it shows us that the God who deals with sin so violently and so completely is also the God that is not just just but merciful. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, he welcomes anyone who turns to him for refuge from his coming wrath. Such is his promise in the Lord Jesus. And so the question that this passage leaves us with, I think, is will you be disturbed, properly disturbed, and turn rather than turn from the judge of all the earth? Sorry, I should say that again, to turn to rather than turn from the judge of all the earth. That's our question. How about I pray? Father, we don't pretend to understand all of the intricacies of what we see in Joshua. Uh, Some things we can't reconcile. Some things will remain horrifying until the day that you return uh, and we see with complete eyes. But Father, we recognise your warning. We recognise the severity of sin, the measures that you will take against it, but also the measures that you have taken to save us from it. I pray that our disturbance will continually push us to Jesus who deals with our sin, who allows us to enjoy your blessing, and that we will continue to live as those uh, saved by him in the land, uh, people who want to be holy as you are holy. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.